Ve Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah. Ve salatu ve selamu ala Resulina ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve ala ala. Allahümme salli ala seyrini Muhammed tepin kulubi ve duayiha ve afiyetil abdani ve şifaiha ve nuril abusar ve diyaiha ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sahbihi. Bismillah. So, uh, we're in the section of we're on connecting to the Quran. This is the translation, the title that the translator gave to it, Sheikh Musa Furber, Hafidhullah. It's a mukhtasar of Imam al Nawi's Tibyan fi Adab Hamlet al Quran. We're in the section on the etiquette of teachers and students, the chapter on the etiquette of teachers and students, and on the section of class etiquette. Uh, in previous sessions, I've done what I usually do, which is I kind of just go off the handle at some point, and we don't really finish much of the book. Uh, inshallah, I'm, I'm intending to try to stay closer to the book. What that means is it might be a little bit less entertaining, but I hope that that's okay, inshallah. So, bismillah. Class etiquette. So we're in the teachers of the students and to teacher and actually this is a lot of the teachers etiquette. Um, and we'll come to the students afterwards. He should ask the students to repeat what they have memorized. Moreover, he should praise a student whose excellence is manifest as long as there is no danger of conceit or something else that may be feared of him. He should gently admonish whoever falls short in his studies as long as he does not fear alienating him. SubhanAllah, look at that expression. It gives you the principle and the the general rule and the principle to use to know if you should have an exception to the rule or not on both sides. Did you catch it? So he says you should uh, praise a student whose excellence is manifest as long as there's no fear of conceit or something else that you'd be afraid of. So obviously if a student does well and you praise them a lot, then there's certain spiritual issues that could come from that, right? They could become arrogant, they could become, think that they're really important, they could think that they're better than people, so on and so forth. So he's saying that the teacher should praise the student that does well, as long as they don't fear this from them. And that they should uh, gently admonish the ones who fall short, as long as they do not fear alienating them. See, on both sides. Uh, this is the principle and here's to know. This is, we've kind of uh, belabored this point a little bit before, but I think it's important because um, like there, there is nuance to these things. There is nuance to these things. There are issues that are complicated. They're hard to answer in one line, hard to answer in one sentence. And generally speaking, like, generally speaking, there will be a rule and there's exceptions to the rule. And the challenge is not only to know what the rule is, right? We, this is, this is like the clickbait version is only the rule clickbait like social media version is just the rule but no understanding of what is the exception to the rule what is the how do, how should the rule actually be applied when does the run should the rule be ignored all this kind of stuff okay so when we read these books and we, we're trying to understand them we want to understand them such that we we take the general concept and we understand at some level the limitations of that concept so yeah, the, the, the good student should be praised, but there's a limit on this. And the student that's struggling should be admonished, but gently, he said gently admonished, but there's a limit on that too. 
the, if you look at the student and you're like, well, even, even though they're not really a great student, if I was to admonish this person a little bit, then they might not come back, right? So then I'm like, okay, I'm not going to take it easy a little bit, right? When there are many students, the teacher gives precedent in instructing his students according to the order in which they arrive. He does not allow one who came earlier to give his spot to someone without a religious justification, since it is offensive to give others' preferences in devotional matters. He does not deny anyone instruction because of unsound intentions. I'll come back to it. Sufyan Authority and others said, their seeking knowledge is intention in itself. May Allah be pleased with them and grant them his mercy. So in the first part, so the way that this would happen is like, say there's a teacher who's, the teacher would sit to teach. So it's a very different model. <laughs> Sometimes some similarities, some differences. The model is the teacher sits to teach, especially in Quran. The teacher is known for Quran. They're known that they teach in a particular place. Someone wants to come and read Quran to them. They do their Quran, they come to the Shaykh or the Shaykh and they read to them. So what that means is when you come, because you want to read, especially in Quran, some of the other disciplines are similar, but especially in Quran, you have to read whatever you're memorizing to the Shaykh. Right? It's not sufficient to like read it on your own and then just kind of whatever. You have to read every single word of the Quran to the Shaykh or the Shaykh. Right? So what that means is when you come to the thing, everyone's going to come and they're going to take their turn. So what this is saying is that when the people come, when the students come, they sit down and they're, they're listened to in the order that they come. And that there shouldn't be any, like, uh, you don't break that order, basically. And he also mentions here that if, um, like, basically, there's some level of purifying of people's intention that happens through their studies. So it might be that a person comes and they're not so sincere when they first come. And they might come for any number of reasons, right? They might come for their friends, they might come for their family, they might come... And old times there was more to it because like it was popular it was the popular thing to do right in many of these places it would be like you study you memorize Quran you read with such and such sheikh or sheikh or whatever else it might be so that becomes some might come to that for you know like the way that people go to medical school some people go to medical school because they want to help people and they want to take care of people and so on some people go to medical school because they want money and they want power and they want respect and everything else so People used to, used to do that. They still do that, but especially it was an issue with religious studies. So they're saying, but the person might come to the class. They don't have a good intention, but in the course of their studies, their intention will improve. Okay, so they shouldn't be turned away because of their intention. Not fidgeting during recitation. During his students' recitation, the teacher should not fidget with his hands. He should keep his eyes from needlessly glancing about without a legal need, and he should not listen attentively. And he should not listen attentively except to the reciter. He should be in a state of virtual purity and seated facing the direction of prayer, and he sits in a dignified manner wearing clothing that is white and clean. It's very important to, you know, there is there is a lot of etiquette to this actually. How does how does how should the teacher be when they teach? And you notice he's talking about that before the student. How should the teacher be? A lot of you know we, we have this thing in our community now. How do I? I'm trying to avoid doing what I usually do. Don't fall off the edge right now. Don't fall off the edge. There's an etiquette to teaching. There's an etiquette to learning, and it's out of respect for what's being learned. And if we don't respect what we have, how is someone else going to respect what we have? Like, part of this is like, you know, we shouldn't want religious teachers, for example. To act like fools. That really, it shouldn't be what we want. Sometimes in community, this is what we start asking for. 
you know, we want the sheikh to be relatable, we want the sheikh to be this and that and so on and so forth. So like, you want them to be honorable or you want them to act foolish? Sometimes what people mean is they want them to act foolish, basically. Laugh and joke and just be like, you know, <laughs> whatever. You can joke and stuff, but you understand what I'm saying. But uh, there's, there's a way to be. So he says, that, and then when they're sitting and they're listening to the person who's reciting to them, they don't get distracted with other things. Focusing on this person right now. No fidgeting, no looking around, listening to this person. And, you know, sitting in a particular way. And this chair. Makes it hard. And, uh, and wearing, wearing clothes that are clean and white and stuff like this. It's facing the Qibla. When he reaches the place where he is to sit, the teacher should pray two rakah before actually sitting, whether or not it is a masjid. Whether or not it is a masjid. So their person goes, they're going to go to sit, and they're going to sit and teach. So anything that's he or she, for the most part in this book, you can just he or she it. It's male, female. So the teacher comes, they're going to teach. Before they sit down to teach, they should, they should go pray two rakah. As long as it's a time when you can pray two rakah. And even if it's not a masjid. If it's a masjid, of course, it's even more emphasized that a person prays to hayat the masjid before they sit down, right? They pray, they pray their two rakah of welcoming the, masjid, welcoming the masjid and then they sit down. Also, they may sit cross-legged. It is related that Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anh, would have people recite to him in the masjid while kneeling. So he, he would sit kneeling, right? But you could sit cross-legged as well. Look how much detail it is. We have a lot of detail in our, in our tradition. It's really amazing, actually. We were talking about, just yesterday, we were talking about this hadith of Al-Musansan bin Mahabba. We've talked about it here before, I think, right? Hadith Al-Musansan bin Mahabba. The one where the Prophet prayed with some of the companions, prayed with Mu'adh bin Jabal, and he turned around after the Salah and he said, Mu'adh, I love you. So don't forget after every prayer to say, Allahumma a'inni ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa hasni ibadatik. And then every generation of people from Mu'adh, every generation afterwards, when they narrate this to their students, they narrate with after salat with, I love you. I love you, so don't forget after every prayer to say such and such, right? Allah, uh, help me to remember you and to be grateful to you and to worship you in the best way. So it's called an hadith al-musaslam bin mahabba And you can, you can, you know, like, you can have a piece of paper the, the person who gave this to me, when he gave it to me, he gave me a piece of paper. It has everyone's name. So I think I'm like number 23. Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is number one, and this guy is number 23, and the sheikh was number 22, and everyone else in the chain. And someone saw this paper. He came up recently. He was like, Subhanallah, it's amazing that every single person in the like we know this much detail that there's this person along the way. Every single one of these is who it was, and so on. I said, This is nothing. This is like one piece of paper. There's books and books and books and books written on this. Who is the person at each level of the chain and which narration and which hadith and each one differs and so on. There's a tremendous amount of detail in our tradition. It's really beautiful. So I'm saying the person who sit, they can sit cross-legged, they can sit how they would sit in salat and tashahud, and so on. It is an emphasized etiquette. You, you mind, this one's interesting. It is an emphasized etiquette that the teacher not disgrace the status of knowledge by teaching in a place associated with the student whether the student is the caliph or a person of lower rank. Instead, he safeguards the knowledge from this, just as the righteous forebears the salaf did. What does this mean? Any guesses? Or 
Maybe it's not a guess, maybe it's you know. What does it mean? Huh? I hear whispers. Students go to the teacher. Students go to the teacher. And Elmu Yuta Wala Yeti. Knowledge is gone to, it doesn't go to. Knowledge is gone to, it doesn't go to. This is the practice of the Salaf. Yeah. yeah, you go out and maybe you deal with the people, obviously. Some live their life, you go out, say salam, live your life, whatever. But when it comes to actual teaching, the teacher has a place that they teach from and the students come to the class. And this was, again, he, he says, it's interesting what he says, this should not... It's, uh, they should not disgrace the status of knowledge. There's an understanding here of like, people have to respect knowledge. They have to respect learning. And, you know, we've said it before, but there's kind of like an anti-intellectual trend in our community, especially over maybe the last 20 years, where it's like, you know, everything should be easy. So everything should be easy, yeah, like the five pillars are easy. Basic articles of faith are easy. Be a grateful person, be a kind person. All of those things are easy. But if you really want to like get serious knowledge of the religion, it takes work. It doesn't, it doesn't come super easily. And we have to respect it. We have to honor it. You know? And this is not some sort of like, you know, people hear these things sometimes and they're like, oh, you know, maybe just the later scholars, they wanted to feel important. So they came up with these kind of things. <laughs> it's, kind <of> a <laughs> it's kind of a big thing to say, you know. But the Sahaba would do it. Like the Sahaba, there's Sahaba, we've said this before, there's Sahabi who tra- traveled all the way from Hijaz to Egypt for one hadith. He's a Sahabi, not like someone who came later or something. A companion of the Prophet traveled all the way from Hijaz to Egypt. We got to the edge of the city of, of Cairo and stuff. The people from the city came out to meet him because they know like someone's coming. And there's news that came, so-and-so's coming. They come to the edge of the city to meet him. And he, they greet, greet him and everything else. He said, it came to my knowledge that the person who came to greet him was the one who heard the hadith. He's like, it came to my knowledge that you heard this hadith from the Prophet such and such. He said, yeah, I did. He's like, can you narrate it to me? He narrated it to him. He said, alaikum." he turned around and went back to Hijaz. That's respect for knowledge, right? Like the Prophet said something, you go all the way. It's a long trip. It's not, you know, it's not an easy trip. It's not travel like today. You have to get on the camel probably and ride and keep riding and keep riding. And like it gets really hot. You're in the middle of the desert. You could die. There's raiders all over the place. Like it's a really serious thing, right? But it's to get the one hadith. So he says knowledge it's gone to, it doesn't go to. We've told stories about this before. He says whether the student is the caliph or a person of lower rank. Look what he's saying. Even if, the, even if the student is the Khalifa, if the student is the Khalifa, like imagine the President of the United States calls you and, and he's like, I need to take your advice on something. Can you come to Washington, D.C.? And you're like, no, you can come to me. <laughs> That's literally what these people did. Like Imam Malik did that. His, the Khalifa told him, I want you to teach my student, my, my children. Can you come to Iraq? He said, no, I can't come to Iraq. You want them to come? They come to me. To the Khalifa. Not like, so it doesn't matter who it is. The communal obligation of teaching. Teaching is a communal obligation. If only one individual is qualified, 
it becomes his personal obligation. But in the context of a community in which there is a group of people through whom the duty of education may be discharged and they fulfill it, the sin falls from the rest. If they refuse to teach, they all sin unless they have a legal excuse. This whole paragraph is explaining what does it mean to say that teaching is a fard kifaya, that it's a communal obligation. We say teaching is a communal obligation, what does it mean? So I read you the paragraph. Anyone can summarize this from something from previous classes? We've covered fard kifaya a number of times. What is the definition of fard kifaya, communal obligation? Okay. 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 So there's an obligation that's not on each individual. It's on a community of people. And if one person or enough people from that community fulfill that obligation, then everyone's okay. Okay. If nobody from the community fulfills that obligation, then everybody is sinful. The whole community. And if someone is uniquely qualified to fulfill that communal obligation, for them it's no longer a communal obligation, it becomes an individual obligation. Okay? So, someone has, every community has a requirement, for example, to have some level of med medical knowledge. Okay? Someone has some sort of medical knowledge, then they fulfill the requirement for the community. But that do, doing something with that knowledge now for them is not, it's not a communal obligation for them. They have to do it. Okay. The other place this very much applies is religious knowledge, right? Religious knowledge is a communal obligation. If a community of Muslims, for example, comes to a particular place and they realize to themselves, wait, we have a bunch of masajid, but we don't have anybody to teach. And we're required as a community to have somebody who can teach. So either we pool all of our money and we bring someone and we give them a sustainable living so that they can teach in the community, or we send someone to go learn so that they can come back and teach in the community and we support them. And if we don't do that, all of us are sinful. Okay? I'll let you apply that one however you feel is fit. But these are interesting things. Communal obligations actually builds out, the idea of communal obligation builds out the philosophy of Islam on community life. What are we supposed to have? What do we need? How do we engage with each other to make that possible? And so on. The student's etiquette. All of the teacher's etiquette that we have mentioned in, in is, in essence, the student's etiquette as well. But the student's etiquette also includes avoiding any concerns that preoccupy him or her from achieving their objectives, except that which is unavoidable because of need. So basically the student should be focused on what they're trying to do and not let things get in the way. They're trying to seek a particular knowledge. They get that knowledge and they, they put their effort in. And thus, they shouldn't be distracted by things that are not needs. That's very particular. Needs, you know. Needs are like things that if uh, life doesn't fall apart if you don't have it, but it's more difficult if you don't have it. Okay? It's abnormally difficult if you don't have it. So if there's a big need, then you have a big need. But otherwise, they should focus. Um, the student should also, he or she should purify their heart from any corruption so that it is fit for receiving the Qur'an, memorizing it, and profiting from it. Again, this is about the Qur'an, right? So the student should purify their heart so that their heart is ready to receive the Qur'an. The student should show humility towards the knowledge so that 
he or she attains it by means of their humility. Some have said in verse, Knowledge destroys the arrogant youth, like the torrent erodes high ground. <laughs> the student shows humility towards his teacher's knowledge and his person, even if he is younger, less famous, or of lower pedigree, less righteous, or lacking in other qualities. So it may be that a person goes to learn from someone else, and that the person who's going to learn from them is actually more knowledgeable than the person they're going to. This is very common in Islamic history. Yeah. Can you just read this part again about the high ground? Yeah. Knowledge destroys the arrogant youth, like the torrent erodes high ground. Knowledge destroys the arrogant youth, like the torrent erodes high ground. So it may be that the student is of higher rank in any number of things than the teacher. It's very common actually in Islamic history. And they used to always say that uh, no one becomes a person of knowledge until they take knowledge from the one who is less than them in terms of their learning, right? And all, you know, it was, this is a common thing. Ekhlun kibar an istighar. So it might be that, uh, actually heard a story of Imam Zaid about this. The, there, was, um, there was a teacher who Imam Zaid had read to, certain text, but he didn't finish the text with him. Uh, reading it to him directly, because he had to travel. And there was a student who was newer to Sham than Imam Zaid, who stayed after him, who finished the text with the Sheikh. So it so happened that they were both living in Berkeley at some point. So Imam Zaid used to go to him and he would read upon him the same text so that he could take from him this piece that he didn't get from the Sheikh. You understand? Do you guys understand? What I, did you guys catch what I'm saying? <laughs> some of you are nodding, some of you are kind of looking at me like the sun is in your eyes. It's okay. Um, <clears throat> point is, you take from who you need to take from. It might be that the person is less known it might be that the person is whatever. But you go and you take knowledge from them. The student should, this one's going to need some comments. The student should obey his teacher, consult him in his affairs, and accept his opinion. An ill person who is rational accepts the opinion of an experienced and sincere physician. With religious knowledge, this is even more appropriate. Actually, it doesn't really need that much commentary. Um, all of the things that you would apply to seeking the advice of a physician, you just can apply it to the teacher, and it'd be okay. You don't necessarily take every physician's opinion automatically, fully on every issue, right? Some issues you might ask follow-up questions, some issues you might get a second opinion, some issues you might take as they are because it's okay, You've, you, you know? So, same thing with a religious teacher. Some things you might hear from them, you'll accept them right away. Some things you might say, you know what, this is of major consequence, I should probably get a second opinion. Some things you might hear it and you might be like, this one seems really off to me, you know? So you can ask more questions, it's okay. But the point is that the student should have some level of adab, should have good manners with their teacher. But not so much that they're giving, like, every student still has their own independent autonomy. You're still your own human being. You have your own responsibility. You have your own standing in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So <clears throat> ask questions, seek clarification, and make your decisions based on, uh, you know, your own assessment along with the... Uh, aid of people who you trust and so on and inshallah it's fine it's never 
Studying with the elite. The student does not take knowledge except from someone whose competence is complete, his religiosity visible, has realized profound knowledge of Allah, and is well known as a person who is free of debilitating problems. The righteous forebears have said, This knowledge is religion, so examine well the one from whom you take your religion. <coughs> so they said uh, so there's a thing that gets repeated a lot people will say oh you know uh, religious teachers they're human beings too that's true I mean every, only the Prophet them is infallible right <laughs> only the Prophet them is infallible but religious teaching is an amana it's a responsibility, and uh, the person who's teaching, you look for people like this, look for people who are, have these qualities. And, <coughs> you know, if they don't have those qualities, then, you know, inshallah we can benefit from them a little bit, and we live in community together, and we support one another and everything else, but they're not like that. Even when we were in, uh, you know, in Egypt, one of the shaykh used to tell us that we should look for when we're trying to find the shiuch to study with, look for the ones whose hair is gray. You know? Like, look for the ones who are older, like 60 plus. You know? You want to learn deen? Go to the people who are 60 plus. That's what they would recommend to us. You know? Really, if we want to learn deen, the best place to go is Dr. Muzalman. Hafidullah. The student should look to his teacher with the eye of respect, believing with unwavering conviction in his competence and superiority over his contemporaries. It's not out of arrogance, it's just out of respecting the person. The student visits his sheikh with most excellent manners, keeping himself tidy with everything we have just mentioned concerning the teacher, cleanliness, regular use of the tooth stick, and a heart free of preoccupation. He does not enter without seeking permission unless the teacher is in a place that does not require it. So many times people will be teaching from their homes. You know, it's very common and up, up to today is very common. Like, the general way that progression would happen when we were studying overseas was like, the first level of studying is you go to a public institution. Maybe like the actual school of Al-Azhar, right? Second layer of thing would be that you go to like a less formal public institution. Maybe it's like a masjid that the sheikh is teaching in or something like that. A third layer would be, maybe there's one in between, but third layer would be like you go to the person's house. So many, many of the shiuch still up to today, they teach out of their homes. They're very, very common. Or if they have something, you know, even subhanAllah, like Shaykh Rayyan, even though his home is in like a very, um, let's just say a very humble area of Cairo, like an area of Cairo that we would tell some people that we're going to this neighborhood to see, and they would be like, you're going there? Like, like Egyptians would be like, you can't go there. You can't go to that neighborhood. Like, of course we can. Like, Sheikh Rayyan lives there. We go to the neighborhood. It's okay. So, and he, in his building, he had a, like a musalla on the bottom floor. So he would come down and he would pray there and he would teach there and stuff like that. And then there were people who, even still beyond that, they went to him in his home upstairs. 
So there's the cleanliness, you know? <laughs> but so he's saying they seek permission before entering, if unless the teacher is in a place where that's not required. The student greets the attendees upon entering and then singles out his teacher with his greeting. Likewise, he bids farewell to him and the assembly in general when he departs. The student does not step over others and sits wherever the assembly's perimeter happens to be unless the sheikh gives him permission to come forward or he knows from his sheikh's behavior that he prefers it. He does not let someone rise from his place out of deference. So basically the student comes, they sit wherever they find a spot. Unless that student is known like you know, that they should come forward. Uh, maybe there's like the top student of that teacher and they know that that teacher, they want, the teacher wants them to sit close to them, you know? Then they would go forward. He does not sit between two companions except with their permission and if they make room for him, he sits and squeezes himself in. We relate from the commander of the faithful, Ali ibn Abi Talib who said, the rights the teacher has over you include that you greet others in general but single him out with greetings to the exclusion of the rest. They also include sitting in front of him, not pointing with your hand in his company, not winking your eye at someone, not citing an opinion contrary to his, and not backbiting anyone while in his presence. And they include, before you start rejecting this in your mind and your heart, review, who did I say said it? It's very important to listen carefully in these things. Who's, whose statement is this? Sayyidina Ali. Sayyidina Ali. Ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu So... Like sometimes we might hear something and be like, oh, that's a lot. We just have to be careful because like, say Nadi. <laughs> so it's okay to be like, okay, this is different than what I'm accustomed to or this is a little bit more than I expected or that's really difficult and really severe. All of those things are kind of fine to feel. But sometimes we feel things like, like this kind of thing to be careful because we don't want to do that with something that say Nadi said. So not backbiting anyone while in his presence. And they include... Not conferring with someone sitting near you while in his audience, not grabbing his garment, not being insistent when he is apprehensive about something, and not being disharmonious such that you become fed up with his company after a length of time. Interesting, very interesting stuff. Some of these don't really apply to us as much, but some of them do. Like, for example, not being insistent when he is apprehensive. So sometimes you might go to a teacher and you ask them something, and you notice that they're a little bit apprehensive. Like maybe they don't, you can kind of feel like they don't feel comfortable answering it they, for any number of reasons, right? What you're saying is you don't push them. Don't push them on that. Let it go. You know, maybe ask them a different time, see a better circumstance, whatever else it might be. And of course, as we always say, there, there could be exceptions to this. There could be something that's like really is so important, you need to hear their perspective on it. And even though they're apprehensive, you push them a little bit, there can be exceptions. But the general rule is you uh, are attentive in that way and polite in that way. And not being disharmonious such that you become fed up with their company after a length of time. So he's saying what? He's saying you want to be able to benefit from the teacher for an extended period of time. So be careful the way that you interact with them. Don't be like really argumentative all the time. Always, you know, really uh, like a lot of friction all the time. You know, because then the relationship is not going to last. And subhanAllah, you know, like these standards are really high, but these were our standards. And um, this is why you have people who went to their teachers for like 20 years. You know, so we said before, Abu Yusuf stayed with Abu Hanifa for 20 years. Abu Hanifa stayed with his teacher for 18 years. You know? So they must have understood something about how to live with one another, how to be with one another, how to interact with one another, such that that relationship can continue. 
Sitting during the lesson. The student should also have proper etiquette with his companions and those attending the Sheikh's assembly, since this is an extension of having good etiquette with the Sheikh and preserves the dignity of the assembly. It's a really important sentence, actually. I've said many times at the Majlis that even more important many times for a person's experience at the Majlis than the teacher is each other. So like part of what we want to have is, of course, we have a community of people who learn together, but a community of people who get along and they interact with each other and they welcome one another, they ask about each other and they build relationships with each other. Not just the people they know, but they specifically go out of their way to meet people that they don't know, to welcome them, to talk to them, all of this kind of stuff. So what does it say? I'll read it again. The student should also have proper etiquette with his companions and those attending the Sheikh's assembly, since this assembly is probably a translation of Majlis, actually. Since this is an extension of having good etiquette with the Sheikh and preserves the dignity of the assembly. So it's really important that people get along with each other, right? And there's only so much that there's only so much that leadership can do for that, right? Like you can encourage people to certain things, you can put certain guidelines in place, but in the end, the people have to do it. You can kick people out if they don't follow them, all that kind of stuff. But the people still have to do it. He sits in the presence of the sheikh in a humble manner of a student, not that of a teacher. He does not raise his voice exaggeratedly, laugh or speak much without need. These are going to be very, again, this is a Qur'an. It's like very old school Qur'an uh, gathering, right? So. He does not fidget with his hands or the like. He does not turn right or left without need. Rather, he faces the sheikh attentive to his words. He should not recite to the sheikh while the sheikh is preoccupied or bored or while he is reluctant, distressed, overjoyed, hungry, thirsty, tired, troubled, or experiencing anything that makes it difficult for him or prevents him from having complete presence of heart or from being energetic. The student should take full advantage of the times when the teacher is energetic. The, teacher's, the student's etiquette includes bearing with the sheikh's coarseness and bad aspects of his character and not being dissuaded from remaining with him and believing in his expertise. The student offers valid excuses for his sheikh's actions and utterances that outwardly seem flawed. If the sheikh is discourteous towards him, the student takes the initiative to apologize to the sheikh, outwardly showing that the offense is his and that he deserves the reprimand. How many people think this needs some commentary? <laughs> Tell the truth. More of you, I'm, I'm sure more of you think it needs commentary. Here's the comment. Do exactly, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> back up first, back up first. Should not recite to the sheikh while the sheikh is preoccupied or bored. Okay. So like I said, the student will come, they read to the shaykh. This applies to Qur'an, it also applies many times to hadith. You know? So uh, I was talking to one shaykh recently and he was telling the story about how he went to visit some country. And when he went to visit that country, one of the people in that, that was in that area, he reached out to the shaykh and he told him, I want to read to you the Muwatta of Imam Malik. Right? The Muwatta of Imam Malik. It's quite thick. And what he means is, I want to read every single narration, every single word from the beginning to the end of the Muwatta of Imam Malik upon you. So that I can take the Senad, I can take the Ijazah of, of narration of this particular text, that I heard it from you and so on. I read it to you. So the Sheikh said he was very busy when he went to this country because he's invited to this country. There's a lot of programs, a lot of people to see, whatever. But he said, you want to read this to me? That's wonderful. So he said, they put me up in this apartment. I told him, you come live with me in the apartment for these days that I'm here. And you go with me everywhere that I'm going. And every time that there's any break, you read to me. So it'd be like they're walking to the car, the guy's reading to him. They're sitting in the car, the guy's reading to him. He comes end of the night after all of the programs, he's reading to him. He said he read to me all the way until Fajr time. 
You prayed Fajr, you went to sleep. In two days, you read the entire Muwatta tradition. Honestly, like really fast, actually. Um, I don't know how, how many days. Three or four, right? I can't remember. Like, we read the Muwatta is the only Hadith text we read to a Sheikh beginning to end. Sheikh was there too. And it took like three or four days for a good like five, six hours a day. So reading the whole text took like, you know, a solid 20 hours probably. So he's reading, he's, but he's going with them everywhere, reading wherever it might be. Anyways, come to the next paragraph. Take the general point of this paragraph. The general point of the paragraph is what? There's, there's details actually to the way that he said, some, for example, the student offers valid excuses for the Sheikh's actions if they seem outwardly flawed. So there's actions that a person could have outwardly that you can make valid excuses for them and it would be acceptable. And there's other flaws that a person might make. You can't make valid excuses for them. It's unacceptable, right? So again, take, take the extreme situation out of our head. But if you're going to spend a lot of time with someone, even if they're a really good person, it's likely that sometimes they're going to be tired. Sometimes they're going to be hungry. They might be like a little bit more coarse in their speech from time to time so on and so forth and that's the case and it's something that you can legitimately make an excuse for them you legitimately make an excuse for them if you start to see that this is like a habit of bad manners of oppression or something like that then of course it's a different situation don't make legitimate excuse don't make excuses for that it, there is a point at which it becomes illegitimate right so uh, just don't take it too far but the idea is there's times like that you know you might, it, I mean, sometimes we don't realize too, like, the kinds of things that people deal with, especially bigger shoes. You know, like, all day long they're dealing with issues. That's what they do. It's not like, all day long it's like message after message after message after message after message of issues. This happened and that happened and this happened and that happened and so on and so forth. And, and sometimes it's people who are disrespecting them and treating them ill and stuff like that. And you might come, like, right after that and ask something. But you already asked before, you know, and they get like a little bit agitated. Okay, you can make an excuse. But if it's like every time you see them, they're mistreating you and they're like beating you down and telling you you're an idiot and all this kind of stuff, then like obviously you can't make, there's no excuse for that. Between lessons. <coughs> the student's etiquette includes his determination. I'm trying to move faster today. Should we move faster? This is faster, right? Go faster? You guys gonna be okay? It's a good pace? Alright, it's a good pace. gonna finish this book. The student's etiquette, and this was the short one, I was like, oh, we'll do the shorter one, it'll be fast. The student's etiquette includes his determination to study incessantly doing so anytime the opportunity arises. He is not satisfied with little when much is possible, yet he does not burden himself with more than he can bear out of fear of boredom and losing what he has gained. It's hard to go too fast because the expression is really good. It's very, and sometimes you read these old authors and you're like, man, subhanAllah, they were sharp. Like they, uh, I was reading someone recently and I was just amazed by it. Someone was asking me like, you know, is Ghazali the first one to do this? And I was like, no, not really. You know, his teacher was actually really amazing, and Juwaini. So I like went to some book and I was reading a little bit of Juwaini and I was like, man, subhanAllah, his expression is incredible. And then, uh, so I, I came across a really nice expression, and I sent it to, uh, most of, I sent it to Sheikh Fuad, 
And Sheikh Fuad was like, SubhanAllah, I was reading Juwaini all last night and this morning. <laughs> in Aqidah, probably, I'm assuming. Because the Juwaini has a lot of books in Aqidah too. So he's like, yeah, his expression is unbelievable. You know? So Nawawi also, his expression is really strong. He is not satisfied with little when much is possible. Yet he does not burden himself with more than he can bear out of fear of boredom and losing what he has gained. So you see? Yeah, he's always push you to the thing and then show you where the limit is. Push you, but show you where the limit is. So like you know where to pull back. But push, 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 but then know like, okay, now I need to take a break. Now I need to take a break. These people, some of these people, they were like so, their aspirations were so high. What taking a break for them meant was that they studied poetry. So it would be like, they study fiqh, then they study hadith, then they study aqidah, then they study logic, then they study Arabic grammar. And then it's like, they need a break. So they study poetry. <laughs> and then they like go back. You know, that's their break, and then they go back to these other things. You see it in so many of the books. It's really funny. They're like, subhanAllah, it's really amazing. If the student reaches the place where the sheikh usually sits and does not find him there, he waits patiently for him and stays close to his door. The student does not skip his daily lesson unless out of concern that the sheikh has an aversion uh, to a given lesson for some reason, since he knows the sheikh's preference for being read to at one time and not another. If he finds the sheikh sleeping or occupied with something important, he waits and does not interrupt the sheikh by seeking permission to enter. So, you know, they're polite. The student should take it upon himself to strive hard to achieve while he is free of responsibility and energetic, since his body is still strong and his mind is alert and occupied by few things before he is confronted with the obstacles of heroism and notoriety. I don't know, I wonder what the translation was here, uh, the Arabic was. So what is the point? The point is that the student goes to the sheikh and they try to learn as much as possible. The general rule in Islamic civilization, in Islamic studies is, the onus on gaining knowledge is on the student. It's not on the teacher. It's a very American thing that's like, we put all of the pressure on the teacher. Teacher has to do this, teacher, they should, they should make, why don't they make programming for us? Why don't they do this for us? Why don't they do that for us? So on and so forth. Like, so, so you want to learn something? You go and you learn something. That's, uh, so that's how they would do it. And he's saying that they, uh, but they should be polite. So a lot of this is re like in that context. It doesn't even make sense to us, right? Because we look at it like the Sheikh has one class in the week. It's five o'clock, we come, you know. It's 10 o'clock, it's 6 o'clock, it's Tuesday night, whatever it is, we just come. It's not like the person is going to the house of the teacher all the time, trying to get knowledge from them, trying to... I mean, like one of the hadith is the musalsal that we were talking about, musalsal of love. There's a musalsal of the day of Eid. How do you get the musalsal of the day of Eid? You have to go to the sheikh's house on Eid and be like, I want to read this hadith to you. And they would read the hadith to them. And every person from that had read the hadith. Everyone in the chain of narration took the hadith on the day of Eid. Every person took it on the day of Arafah. How do you get it? You have to go and get it on that day, right? So, and then sometimes you might have like an organization that arranges an event for you, and it might fall on your day of Eid, but it might be a very special event, and it's an opportunity to gain such things, like the Musasa. Maybe the person lives in a different time zone, and they're observing Eid on a different day. So by having an event with them, you can get the Musasa of the day of Eid, and the Musasa of the day of Arafah, on the same day. It would be really great, right? Inshallah. Next Saturday, 1 p.m. <laughs> day of Eid. I know. It's the day of Eid. Look for the flyer. Next Saturday, 1 p.m. Uh, but for him, it's the day of Arafah. 
For us, it's a day of heat. Inshallah, we'll put the fire out soon. They should also study more when they're younger, basically. They have more time. They have more energy. Subhanallah, I was talking to someone yesterday. And he was like, I was always a night person. And now I find myself at 11.30, my eyes start getting heavy. He's like, and I realize I'm getting old. Like, I'm not as young as I used to be. It says I don't have as much energy as I used to have. Right? So when we're younger, it's much different. Like, if you're, if, you're, if you're not married, for example, if you don't have kids, for example, if you don't have to financially provide for somebody, for example, you have a lot more time to seek knowledge. So that's the, this is like waqt al-tahsil. Try to get it as much as you can. And if you're not, you're not. It's okay. Allah gives qadr to whatever he wants to, whoever he wants. The student should recite with the shaykh early at the beginning of the day. Because the Prophet said, that my, my ummah is given blessings in the early morning. Treating envy and pride. A student is obliged and strongly advised to not harbor envy toward his peers or anyone else because of some good quality that Allah the generous has given them. This is very, very common. Right? In gatherings of knowledge, we're accustomed to competition. Right? You do this, you have to do that, you have to get into this school, get into that school, be number one in your class, all this kind of stuff, right? So then when we come to gatherings of knowledge, Islamic knowledge, we bring that same competitive spirit. It's good to have aspirations, but it's bad to look at other people and be like, oh, they learned more than me, they got more than me, they, ex- they succeeded more than me, in a, in a way that you're like upset about it, right? That you have hasad, you want them to lose that, there's envy in it, you have to be careful of this. And everyone will have something different. You know, and we have to remind ourselves: we seek knowledge not for that piece of knowledge; we seek knowledge for Allah. So, if we seek knowledge for Allah, someone else might do much better than us. But it doesn't matter because we were both seeking Allah, inshallah, and both of us will get what we were seeking. So, you know, some people it will come easier. There's generations of students now that I feel like they're doing much better than. Some people in our generation did, like myself. But I think that that's okay. <laughs> you know? Like, we, we ended up losing a lot of time and a lot of different things. Trying to figure out what to do, trying to do this, trying to do that, so on. You have students that go, and for whatever reason, things are facilitated for them. And they're able to accomplish a lot. MashaAllah. Alhamdulillah, it's good. Some people will have more, it's okay. The way to remove pride is by the student reminding himself that his achievement did not occur through his own power and strength. Rather, it was only through Allah's grace. Therefore, the student should not be proud of something he did not produce, something that Allah most high placed in him. It's not from you anyways. It's from Allah. Give me a popular cultural reference of where this was said in a very prominent place very recently. Anyone? It's exact, almost his exact words. It's not you. Whatever you accomplished, it's not you. It's not because you worked hard. It's not because you did this. It's not because you did that. It's because Allah gave it to you and it's a test. Huh? Habib. Habib. In his, Hall of, in his Hall of Fame induction speech. It's a great speech. You should listen to it. One of the things I think is interesting, you know, the fatwa and MMA aside. <laughs> One of the things I think that's interesting about Habib, and people should actually study it, is that he's, he's very rare in the sense that he's actually someone 
who grew up in an environment that was not affected by the, the tendencies and the behaviors and the thought patterns of the West and he has complete izzah about it he has complete honor and dignity about it it's like I grew up in a village in Dagestan we didn't have all these things right they have very and so what happens is you have a, a particular way of doing things that in his case and in many cases of these people is is informed by Islamic civilization so what you do after that it flows naturally in the right way so if you think about his speech, what was his speech? His speech was, thank Allah. It's the beginning of the speech. Hall of Fame induction speech, 25 minutes. He comes and he's like, Alhamdulillah. Everything is from Allah. Then he says, some people they think they achieved what they achieved because they worked hard and they did this and they did this and so on and so forth. He's like, there's a lot of people who worked hard they didn't achieve these things. It's all from Allah and it's a test. <laughs> to the world. Hall of Fame fighting speech, right? This was this week. Then he moves on to his father. He moves on to his coaches. He moves on to his teammates. Right? So it's very like this is how you should this is how a person should be thinking about things. Right? So it really subhanAllah it just comes naturally. Because this is what a person was raised on. So when it comes time to it just comes out. SubhanAllah. So he said the same thing. The way to overcome envy is to know with certainty that it was the wisdom of Allah that brought a good trait to a person. So one should never object to it, nor should one dislike wisdom that Allah Most High willed, and thus He Himself does not dislike. So if you see that someone else has some quality that maybe it's they have it more than you had, or you have, it's Allah's will that they have that. How can you, you can't have envy about what Allah gave the person. That means you're basically having an issue with Allah, which is obviously a problem, right? The way to eliminate boasting is to know that it destroys whatever one has in the afterlife and one's blessings in this life, which makes one blameworthy. And to know that in reality one does not truly possess anything worthy of, of aggrandizement. May Allah spare us his displeasure and grant us success in pleasing him. Amen. So he gave three things here. What's the way to overcome pride? To remind yourself that the, the achievement is not from you, it's from Allah. What's the way to overcome envy? is again to recognize that whatever the other person has it's from Allah so you can't really you know have an issue with it and the way to overcome boasting is to remember that doing so ruins the person's afterlife and their life here takes away all their deeds may Allah spare us no more 50 minutes I can't see what's there is there food back there? Yes, sir. There is. <laughs> Seven ten. The spirit of democracy. <laughs> Next chapter is five pages. How many people think we should stop? I'm not going to be offended. It's fine with me. How many people think we should stop? Okay. How many people think we should continue? Okay, so we have about eight votes total in the whole place. <laughs> it's one, two, three, four. I think there's more than eight people here. Oh, you won anyways, so it's fine. The etiquette, of, the etiquette of bearers of the Quran. Much of this etiquette has been mentioned in the previous chapter. It includes being in the most complete of states and manifesting the most honorable of qualities through avoidance of everything the Quran prohibits. 
It also includes being protected from ignoble means of income, having dignity, rising above the tyrants and vulgar people of this world, being humble with the righteous, the altruist, and the poor, being fearful of Allah and having tranquility and respect. Man, make a poster out of it. It includes being in the most complete of states and manifesting the most honorable of qualities through avoidance of everything the Qur'an prohibits. It also includes being protected from ignoble means of income, having dignity, rising above the tyrants and vulgar people of this world, being humble with the righteous, the altruist, and the poor, being fearful of Allah, and having tranquility and respect. Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. Abdullah bin Mas'ud, the great companion of the Prophet right? And he's one of the great scholars of the Qur'an amongst the companions. And he's also one of the great scholars in general. The madhab of Abu Hanifa radiallahu ta'ala anhu goes largely back to Abdullah bin Mas'ud and his students and their students. It's, it's like from the companions, he's the, he's the wellspring of the Hanafi school. Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. He said, the bearer of the Qur'an should be known by his night when the people are sleeping, by his day when the people are awake, by his sadness when people are joyous, by his weeping when people are laughing, by his silence when people are engrossed, and by his fear when people are pompous. I don't know what to say about this. I don't know what to say about it. Can you repeat that? Yeah. Abdullah bin Mas'ud said, The bearer of the Qur'an should be known by his night when the people are sleeping, by his day when the people are awake, by his sadness when people are joyous, by his weeping when people are laughing, by his silence when people are engrossed in conversation, and by his fear when people are pompous. I don't know how to explain it, but you know, you ever meet somebody, I think that a lot of times what what we've been kind of accustomed to wanting is we want people who make us feel comfortable. Okay? And there's some wisdom to that, obviously, you know? Um, should feel comfortable with people at some level. But part of what he's kind of getting at here is like, and there's, it's it's paradoxical. We, we talked about it a little bit when we talked about the descriptions of the Prophet The Prophet did two things at the same time It's very hard to understand. The first thing is that people are very comfortable with him. And they loved him and everything was good in that way. At the same time, He's completely awe-inspiring. And just being in his presence pushes the person to push themselves harder. So it's a paradox, right? Like, how do both of those things happen? But what he's getting at is related to this. He's not trying to get at, like, this person should be just a buzzkill and, like, really annoying to be around and they're always... That's not what he's trying to get at. What he's trying to get at is that this person is so conscious of their relationship with Allah that they are aware of their hal, their internal spiritual state, is like a very real thing to them. 
And because that's so serious to them and so real to them, they won't do things that will affect their, their, their situation with Allah, which is known in their hands. It's hard to explain. But like, you find it in people who, you feel, it's not that you're uncomfortable with them in a bad way. It's that you just feel like, man, this person really has something. Like they're functioning on a different level in this whole thing than what I'm functioning on. And so you're around them and you're like, man, I need to step up my game. You know, like I need to be more serious about my relationship with Allah. I, I, I want to take this thing more real. I want it to be more real to me. I want to have more devotion. I want to have more commitment to learning. I want to be more serious about serving people, so on and so forth. They just have something. And because they're so conscious over preserving that thing inside, that they have a hal with Allah. Like, I, I don't know how to explain. Imam Zayd always quotes his, one of his teachers who said that a thousand people with no hal with Allah won't change even one person. But one person who has a hal, there's no good tra- translation for it, with Allah, they'll change a thousand people. Like, there's a reason why Islamic civilization, the standard question of how are you is what? In Arabic. Kayf al-hal. Kayf al-hal. Like, what's, what's going on? So it's a very profound question, actually. It's like, what is going on with you and your heart and its presence with Allah? Because if someone's heart has a real presence with Allah, when you come into contact with them, you're going to feel it. And you'll be like, okay... I get it. It's not so. So try to understand it in that light. And Hassan al Basri radiAllahu taala anhu he said the people who came before you considered the Quran to be correspondence from their Lord, so they would ponder it by night and act upon it by day. So this is again, he said, like their heart really feels that this is the word of Allah. So during the night they're thinking about it. During the day they're acting upon it. It's really really important that we stop. Like we, our lives are too busy And our connection with these devices and things Is so much That we can't even begin to understand What this whole thing is Because we're completely lost Like But sit down for a few minutes Put everything away And just Imagine you're turning to Allah Actually some, some people have not just said When you face the Qibla They said the Qibla is like the like the lighthouse of the spiritual emanations in the world. So when you face the Qibla, you're facing like when Allah descends mercy and all these things on the world, it's extending from the Qibla. So you face the Qibla and you feel like I'm facing the Qibla. And I'm facing, I'm turning to Allah. And I'm going to speak directly to Allah. You know? Uh, it's prophetic dua, right? There's no God but you. Not la ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. There's no God but you, Allah. And I glorified are you. And I have uh, I'm, I've made mistakes, right? I'm, I'm an impressive person. And just sit and face the qibla and turn everything off. And say something like this that's a direct correspondence to Allah. And feel that I'm actually speaking to Allah right now. And that thing that comes in the heart, if you train it to do that, that's what these people are holding on to every single moment of the day. This is why you get what's in the in the statement of Abdullah bin Mas'ud And the high, high, like special, special ones of them, they're doing it and they're hiding it from you. So you don't even realize it. It's not, it's not much of a secret between them and Allah. It's 
amazing. Really. And Fudayl ibn Iyad radiallahu anhu said, the bearer of the Qur'an is the bearer of the banner of Islam. He should not allow himself to be distracted by someone who distracts himself, nor talk about nonsense with those who talk nonsense. All out of due veneration of the Qur'an. All out of due veneration of the Qur'an. Uh, I'll read one more section and then we'll stop. Reciting as a means of livelihood. We're not going to finish the chapter. Reciting as a means of livelihood. It is important to take every precaution not to use the Qur'an for one's livelihood and earn income with it. Statements regarding its prohibition are numerous and well known, including hadith from the Prophet and statements from the companions and the righteous forebears. The scholars disagree about the issue of taking wages for teaching the Qur'an. If you notice here, there's a slight difference in what he's saying. Okay? So, the slight difference is being paid to come and recite the Qur'an is different than being paid to come and teach the Qur'an. So, not the same issue. Generally, in people's minds, they conflate the two issues. But the issue of being paid to come and recite the Qur'an is kind of problematic. Uh, the workaround that people would have to this is you don't set a pay for it. So someone might agree to come and recite the Qur'an at something. Don't agree on a price with them. Just pay them. This way they didn't get paid for coming to recite the Qur'an. It's just a gift you gave them. It's a slight subtlety, but it's an important subtlety. It's different. Uh, which is not the same as being paid to teach the Qur'an. Okay, so that's why there's two different paragraphs here. The scholars disagree about the issue of taking wages for teaching the Qur'an. Imams Atta, Malik, Shafi'i, and others per permitted taking wages provided that there was a valid agreement. Meaning the people that are involved have agreed on this wage and so on. Az-Zuhri, Abu Hanifa, and others prohibited it. Okay, even teaching it. They said you can't be paid to teach the Qur'an. Uh, although Abu Hanifa is mentioned here The position of the Hanafi school is actually that it's allowed uh, Because they realized very early on Very, very early on like Right after Abu Hanifa If people don't get paid to teach the Qur'an Nobody's going to be able to teach the Qur'an And then if nobody can teach the Qur'an Nobody can learn the Qur'an If nobody learns the Qur'an There's no Qur'an, right? So they allowed it out of necessity Not out of the default position they allow out of necessity that a person can teach the Qur'an. Ideally, uh, they don't have to get paid to do that. They're just maybe, they have a stipend, they get to live in the community, they can teach Qur'an classes, they don't have to charge for it. They don't have to turn everything into a business. Right? And not everything has to be a business. That's not the way Islamic studies works. It's not supposed to be a business. It's supposed to be people are enabled to do the work, and that's different than someone who's paid a wage. Someone who's paid a salary or like an endowment, a stipend is different than someone who's paid a wage. It's not like so you have to do this prayer and you have to do that prayer and you have to teach this class and we're going to give you this. It's we want you to be in the community. We trust that you're going to do the work and inshallah we work together and so on. It's a slight difference but if you sit, sit with it for a while you see that it's a significant difference. As Zuhri, Abu Hanif and others prohibited it. Like I said, they allowed it by necessity. Rigorously authenticated hadiths have been related. There's an important point there, but I don't want to go into it too much. The madhab is more than the, found, the namesake of the madhab. 
The madhab is more than the namesake of the madhab. Sometimes you talk about madhabs and people are like, oh, why are you stuck in the third century? You're not stuck in the third century. The madhab has existed for a thousand years. They've been functioning on the process of the imam. So the position of the madhab is, is that if Abu Hanifa had seen the situation that we saw, he would have allowed people to get paid for teaching the Qur'an. So it's still actually his position, even though it's not his position. And this is a detail. Rigorously authentic, authenticated hadiths have been related, indicating its permissibility. I clarified two responses to the hadiths indicating its prohibition, along with other answers to the issue and to be end. I believe the Shafi'is, yeah, they, they allowed it. Maliki's allowed it to take money. So he clarifies this in another book. Any questions or comments or anything that people have? Yes. If you do see something in a teacher that's habitual, what's the responsibility of the student in that case? I would say that it kind of depends on a lot of factors. So it would depend on the nature of the relationship between the student and the teacher, and it would depend on the severity of the issue. Largely, those would be the two determining things. So. I heard someone say this recently, they were like, yeah, you know, I talk to Sheikh so-and-so and sometimes he's in this mood and I tell him, why are you being a jerk right now? And I was like, <gasps> like, you're able to do that? Like, you say that? I'm like, wow. <laughs> but he perceives it as I have this, this is the nature of my relationship with the teacher, is that I can say that to him and I know that he'll listen and he'll understand, you know. And he'll be like, okay, sorry, explain to me what you're trying to say. They'll be all right, you know? Um, so I think it depends on the thing. General, Generally speaking, Nasiha is the right of the Muslims. Generally speaking, Nasiha is the right of the Muslims. Giving sincere good counsel is a right that Muslims have upon other Muslims. And a lot of times, especially for teachers who are like less senior, you know, they're growing, they're, they're, they're growing, basically. There's oftentimes times when we might notice things from them that warrant some level of nasiha. And if we were to give that to them, it would be beneficial to them and help them such that they don't... Um, like, sometimes people fall into big mistakes, and if someone had said something to them before, they might have been able to save them from it. It could be a case that they're just, you know, arrogant and, you know, all of that stuff is possible. But it could be that they're sincere, but they're making a mistake on something. And if someone gives them that advice, then it saves them from that. You know? So I, I think that it depends on the severity of the issue and it depends on... Like, as long as we're not talking about, I don't know, like they see from a teacher that they keep having secret marriages. Should they give them advice or not? No, they should, like, you know escalate the situation to whatever it needs to be escalated to. But if it's like, I don't know, they see that they have a tendency to um, I, I don't know, be impolite on some particular issue or I don't know, it's good to give them a guess. Um, 
Yes. You mentioned like many times um, you sort of recite Hadith to different chefs, right? Um, I guess what's the purpose of that? Yeah, it's a good question. What's the purpose of that? People recite different hadiths to different sheikhs, and what's the purpose of that? Um, the purpose of that is largely um, barakah, and it's largely just the blessing of doing it, and kind of carrying on a tradition. In the now, in the early period, that was a very real thing, right? So. If you're in the early period when hadith is not so codified and stuff, like it's written down, it's been taught, it's been passed, but you don't have like Bukhari, Sahih al-Bukhari. You don't have the books of hadith. Then in this case, to learn a hadith, you have to actually hear it from the person. And you have to know who they heard it from, going back to the Prophet wasallam, And in doing so, you can ascertain its level of reliability. So in the early period, you actually had to hear every hadith from the people who heard it. Once the books of hadith are codified, like say now we have Sahih al-Bukhari, then even at that point, the students of Bukhari, they have to hear the entire Bukhari from Bukhari himself, and their copy of the manuscript of Bukhari has to be signed off by him, so that you know this is a reliable transmission of what Sahih al-Bukhari actually is. And, and, and for like a couple of generations probably after that, this, that same process will happen until the book is so widespread that you can find if there's a mistake in it. Right? Now, like what will happen, those manuscripts will exist across places and so on. So there comes a point in Islamic history where like you're not really reading the hadith on the sheikh now to confirm its authenticity or its reliability or something like that. You're reading it to them out of like preservation of this tradition that this person heard it from this person heard it from this person and I want to be connected to the Prophet and this is the way that knowledge was passed and so that that reading like this type of bijazah in riwayah in narration is more an issue of barakah now of, of the blessing and just like it's a nice thing in many ways actually the ijazah that really matters now is not actually the one in riwayah it's the one in diraya which is an understanding. So in this case, a person might study like a body of text in the Hanafi school, for example. So they study this text from the Hanafi in the Hanafi school, and the Sheikh says, you, "I give you an ijazah in this to teach it, and you know you learned it from me, or you've studied this ten books with me, so now I give you the ijazah and the whole madhab." This is this is more an issue of like, do they really understand, which matters, you know. So it depends on what we're talking about. Uh, in Quran, it still matters. In Hadith, not as much. In Quran, it still matters because the principle on Quran is that it's taken orally. You know, the writing is is a uh, is like a mnemonic device more than it's. It's a, the Quran has to be taken orally. So the ijazah in Quran, where you read the entire Quran on the Shaykh, that one is very particular and still has to be done that way because. That one truly, like every letter, goes back to the Prophet Sallallahu goes back to Jibreel Alayhi goes back to Rabbul Aizman. So, Quran is, that's like the real Ijazah in a sense. But the other ones are for like Barakah and for the blessing of the gathering and to have nice traditions around them. So, inshallah, the one that we're going to do on, on Saturday, the Shaykh will read uh, um, 
the Muslim for day of Arafah and day of Eid. It's more like, these are good ways to celebrate these things. And you learn them, and maybe later on you teach them. Yes, Sheikh. The day of Arafah itself? You're just going to pray to Allah and seek his forgiveness. <laughs> the Majlis is having a gathering on the day of Arafah too. <laughs> Which I believe is Friday, right? So Friday, the thing is, the school is booked until 6.30. So what time does it start? 7. So the idea is that people can come here at 7, just do worship, you know, read some Qur'an, make some du'a, ask Allah's forgiveness, make some dhikr, stuff like that. And then when Maghrib time comes, we'll have a start together, inshallah. And there's goodie bags, Eid goodie bags for the kids, inshallah. You have to register for that. The end flyer will go out. Yes, what do you do if there's a teacher in your community that was ousted for something, something big like you mentioned, and then years go by and they come back into the realm of teaching again? How do their former students move to the community? How should they live? Yeah. So the question is, if and then years pass by, and they come back, what should be done? Basically, right? You know one of the nice things about a, like a system? <laughs> you know? Like, this, the Qadi could do this before. If someone is giving fatwa, and they're like not giving fatwa the way they're supposed to give fatwa, the Qadi could come and say, this person, they're prohibited from speaking on fatwa, and if they do, we're going to beat them. Like, literally, they would be beaten. Because it's a huge danger to the religion, right? So we just need a qadi. <laughs> and then if they break the rule, then we'll beat them. And they'll be totally illegal. We'll, have to sign, we'll get them to sign a waiver. <laughs> I don't know. Allah help us. I mean, I don't, I don't even... If you know of some harm, and you truly know of it, and you can give advice to someone who would fall into that harm, you can give them that advice. On a more public scale, I don't know how we solve these things. We have a big problem around this. Um, it's a big problem. I mean, because we don't have any system. Ideally, the people who are in positions of power, oftentimes they're told of these things. So that's one thing you could do. If somebody's hiring them, if someone's giving them a platform, so on and so forth, you tell them, and you know of issues, you can go to the people who give them that platform and tell them they have this issue and that issue, so on. Ideally, they, they, they don't, uh, you know, ideally they do something about that. In many cases, what that will boil down to is how much quality fundraising this person will do for the organization. As long as they're bringing money into the organization, then they won't do anything about it. If you make a public fuss of it, then they don't bring money into the organization anymore. I'm not necessarily saying that you should do that. <laughs> I don't know. Talk to Sheikha Muslima. Poor thing, she's been dealing with these cases for 13 years now really exhausting. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us, may Allah forgive us, may Allah accept from us. 
will officially close. If people want to get food, you can get food. If you want to sit here and ask more questions, you can sit here and ask more questions. Subhanakallahu <laughs> wa